You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Episode 6, Series 2 of the Women's Running Podcast. I'm Esther Newman, Editor of Women's Running, and in this episode I speak to Gabby Logan. Gabby is a mainstay on our TVs, presenting Match of the Day and Question of Sport, as well as reporting on sporting events such as the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games and the London Marathon. Coming from a very sporty family, it's perhaps not surprising that Gabby excelled at sport as a child, becoming an accomplished gymnast in her teens. Sadly, injury put an end to her gymnastic career, but an appearance on Blue Peter tapped into her ambition to launch a career in broadcasting, which she swiftly did once out of university. She talks to me here about how she launched her career, shrugging off discrimination, the snarly comments in newspapers and the disparity in the financing of men's and women's sports, which, she explains, begins at grassroots level. She also talks about her running, how her teenage son now overtakes her, and how, while she's chuffed to bits with her recent MBE, because of COVID, she still hasn't had her audience with the Queen. Yet. This episode is sponsored by Runderwear, a small brand in Dorset which makes technical performance underwear to prevent chafing. Voted the UK's number one underwear and socks brand at the UK Running Awards, Runderwear is well known for designing seamless, moisture-wicking underwear that runners love. Runderwear is also the sports bra and underwear partner of England Athletics and their sports bras come with their chafe-free guarantee and are available in sizes 28A to 40H. Runderwear recognises that a great fitting supportive sports bra is vital for the long-term health of breast tissue and helps prevent irreversible damage. This is why they offer two different styles of running bra, each designed to significantly reduce breast movement during high-impact exercise, which prevents ligament damage and breast sagging. You can buy their award-winning bras at runderwear.co.uk. Don't forget, women's running listeners can still get an exclusive 20% off all full-priced items online using the code WR20 at runderwear.co.uk. That's WR20 at runderwear.co.uk. 
you also do a podcast that you started a podcast this year um so can you tell me about that yeah um i started midpoint um in the summer i had the idea about a year ago but i just was always too busy with things and then when lockdown happened and lots of sport got cancelled I got kind of organizing my guests and um and they're very easy to do aren't they and you know quite um flexible kind of way of doing an interview so I was able to get the first series done quite quite easily and um and it went really well and uh charted well and had lots of good feedback which kind of was nice because it was very um very much a passion project i wanted to do something that was aimed at people kind of in the mid life so um it was um the guest list you know kind of basically the, the main rule is you've got to be over 40 and um and it was serendipitous that quite a lot of my guests said they were people i targeted because i kind of knew them and knew that they were good talkers but they also had quite a few of them done interesting things in the middle of their lives whether it was john bishop her only started earning money from comedy at 40. Uh, Richard Osman hadn't appeared on TV till he was 39, you know. Um, so the idea that you can go and do something different in the middle of your life, you don't have to kind of stay in the same pattern, the same, uh, doing the same thing. And I think it resonates even more now with lockdown and with what people are kind of, what people are going through from an employment point of view, because I think we just, you know, we just all have to be a lot more flexible. And have you had any guests on there that you've been quite starstruck by yet? Uh, not yet no because I kind of knew all of them so um I the only person I hadn't met who I had on and I hadn't even spoken to but I felt I knew was Mariella Frostrop um who uh, I managed to reach through a friend of a friend and well through one of my best friends she knows her um and I said to her I felt like it's one of those moments where I feel like I should know you because you've been around for so long um but you know she kind of looked the same 20 years ago but she's kind of had this presence in our lives and um yeah she was um but she was great and um she was the only one who drank alcohol while she was doing it so I have much respect for her she was it was five o'clock and she had a glass of red wine so I was like brilliant (laughs) I always think that me and her would be such good friends she's one of those people (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right, though. She's, I said that to her at the end, you know. I said, look, I've, I haven't actually physically met you because we've still had to do it on Zoom. I managed to get a couple away in the middle of lock, uh, the release where I managed to actually sit face-to-face with my guests. Three of them I did face-to-face, but, yeah, the rest were on Zoom. And so um, I said to her, um, I really, you know, I hope in the next year at some point when we're released, I can go and have a nice Sunday lunch with our mutual friend and actually physically see her. Yeah. <laughs> and who have you got coming up, can you, can you say? Uh, yeah, I've got, um, I start recording the second series this week and I have Rio Ferdinand and uh, Richard Bacon, um, who... I used to work with at Five Live. He's now doing phenomenal things in American TV, which would be interesting because I think, um, you know, he's he's pivoted his career in the middle of his life. I have got um, Tess Daly, um, who is remarkably 51. Um, Can't believe that. <laughs> I know. Um, who, else is, uh, who else have we got lined up? I've got Piers Morgan uh, saying um, the end of the year, but that's fine because we're not launching the series till January. So he's trying to kind of put me, oh, end of the year. He, so, yes, fine, that's fine. Uh, he, <laughs> I think he'll be quite interesting because he kind of seemed to take a, he, he went up in popularity during lockdown because he um, he kind of seemed to garner a lot of support for the way he approached things. So it'd be quite interesting to see whether or not he likes being liked. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've got a few others who are kind of saying they'll do it, it when they want to do it face to face. They don't want to do it in Zoom. Some, some really big names um, who I'm excited about. So yeah, it's, it's all going, you know, as I say, I'm not, I'm not launching that till January or it's not far away now, is it? It feels like forever, but it's actually six weeks away. So um, plenty going on before then, though, obviously work-wise and everything. 
is it hard to or is it harder to interview people who are interviewers um I think because it's a conversation you know so um hopefully it just flows um and you never really know which way it's going to go and some of them that while they work in tv they're not necessarily um kind of clinical interviewers you know so um i mean there is an element to always when i think you work in front of your peers you want to get it right you want to nail it if you've got peers there you know so the, the best example of that is sports personality of the year where Claire Balding and Gary Nicker and I come together and do a show which we never work together all year round, you know, never ever together because we're always doing individual things. And you you know that these are, you know, your your contemporaries, your peers, your competitors, whatever you want to call them. So you, you know, you want to nail every link and get everything completely right because that'd be the worst time to have a cock up. <laughs> so is there does there exist a rivalry between you and Claire Balding? no not in any kind of um overt way but you know they are your the people that you know you're going for similar jobs you're going for similar kind of you know although but not really in the same sports generally um and claire is a friend you know a very a very sweet friend and uh i would you know never say anybody really i think you change your mindset anyway through your career and realize that those kinds of ideas of making people your nemesis is a bit of a waste of time because you know you don't know what's going on in somebody's head and what they want to do and what you've got to work on your journey haven't you what you want to do and how how you want to be and be perceived and do your you know come over in your job and your work life um but they're definitely the people that you know are more um, invested in that job. You know, they know exactly what that job is about. So, yeah. um, of course, you want to, you know, get things right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, and uh, speaking of journeys, your journey into presenting felt, well, when, when I've been reading up about it, it seems sort of quite a rapid a rapid move from university straight into into presenting but before then obviously you had this emerging career as a champion gymnast yeah I wouldn't say emerging career. I mean the thing about gymnastics is it it filled my every waking moment outside of schoolwork when I was a kid and then into teenage years and then um when I did my A-levels it was when I stopped gymnastics kind of halfway through my A-levels I had just been to the Commonwealth Games and got injured and with gymnastics it's never um at that time it was never going to be a career because we you know, you didn't earn a penny from it and you never would. Um, and now obviously gymnasts are lottery funded. When they've left school, they can focus just on gymnastics for a while. But even then, it's never going to be a career. You know, you might, there are some competitions, some prize money now, and there's some ways of getting, you know, if you're Max Whitlock and you're a double Olympic champion, you're going to have brands wanting to work with you. But generally, the only way gymnasts made money was joining Cirque du Soleil, you know, and um, and plenty did, and or going off to similar shows and things like that. I didn't ever want to be a performer, do that kind of thing. So it wasn't like I wanted to go off and, and join the circus or anything. But I, um, but I knew that, you know, at some point sport would not be providing me an income or directly be providing me an income. So... Yeah, that was that was always going to be an end point, you know, to, to that um, sporting life for me. And I also wasn't going to be a coach or, you know, going to the kind of admin of the sport. So um, when I was on uh, when I was a gymnast, I was on Blue Peter when I was 15 to advertise a show. And that's where I, I felt like I wanted to work in this magical world of television. So so I started writing to TV stations and radio stations because I didn't have anybody in my family who worked in journalism. I didn't have anybody in my family who'd been to university. So um, I went to Durham eventually to read law because I didn't know 
broadcasting was ever going to be a thing for me so I wanted to do something that was vaguely serious at university and um and potentially vocational or have a career at the end of it and um and that's when I I also started working in the local radio station in Newcastle Metro FM and so kind of alongside my degree I was getting all this work experience so it looks like it was very quick in one sense because I was great in my first year post-university I was already working in TV and radio but I had worked for three years before that almost solidly you know kind of on the radio so I guess it was it looks accelerated that early that early period definitely and what was it like I mean uh, as a child doing all those that that gymnastics I mean you were doing hours and hours of training did did that feel different from your peers from what they were doing were they sporty as well um not to the extent that I was I mean you know we all played school sports as well and did you know did a bit of netball at school I didn't go to particularly um sporty schools I went to a very very average state comprehensive in the 80s where teachers were often on strike unable to get sports fixtures going we only had a competitive netball team we didn't have a competitive hockey team football you know anything else I did a little bit of country at school did a little bit of athletics but that was on my own, you know, like the teacher said, oh, you're really good at high jump. Would you like to go to city championships? It wasn't a case of taking a team of people to the city championships. So, um, so I didn't, um, I didn't miss out on school sport, but my friends didn't do anything really outside of school. You know, a couple of them played a bit of netball for county and things. And so I was different to them in the sense that I was rushing from school every day to the gym or even going before school. But, um, but it was kind of my thing, you know, it was what I, I didn't, I didn't feel different. I didn't, I didn't miss, I didn't feel I was missing out on anything. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd do probably one in every 10 social events with them, you know, and um, I didn't hang out at the weekends with them because I was either away training or I'd come back from a training camp somewhere and get into Leeds city station at 10 o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night and changing the toilets and then go meet them somewhere. You know, <laughs> it was that kind of, um, that kind of thing. So um, it was just what we did, you know, because my sister was doing it as well. And that was our that was our norm, if you like. Yeah. And then I read an interview with you um, where you talked very honestly about your experiences of something that you referred to as a controlled eating disorder while you were a gymnast. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, I did a podcast um, recently called Game Changers. And I, I and sometimes when you say something verbally and then somebody transcribes it, it looks a lot more serious than the tone in which it was said. And what I said was that in um, when you're a gymnast, you um, are, I mean, how the conversation evolved was we were talking about the current um climate around British gymnastics and obviously there's been a lot of um, reported about bullying and um, maltreatment of gymnasts and obviously that's being dealt with and and I was asked about my experiences and they weren't cruel you know my experiences weren't cruel it was a self-imposed thing that I knew what the body type should be that I you know would be performing best at and how to achieve that I didn't know because I didn't have nutritional advice I didn't have the knowledge I've got now so my way of dealing with that was to just cut out loads of foods or um, become a vegetarian so I could only eat vegetables at dinner while the rest of the family had, you know, kind of a normal meal. So, so it was kind of like, I wasn't in my, in my head. I wasn't, dis, I wasn't body, seeing body dysmorphia. I wasn't looking at myself in the mirror and thinking I was ginormous. I knew I was, you know, smaller than the average person because of my sport, but I had to be lean all the time, you know, especially around competitions and things. And, and so I didn't know, you know what a balanced diet really was um a proper balanced diet and so i think if, if i'd had that information now i i would have just done a, you know i would have done things very differently but the only way i kind of knew how to do that was to be abstemious and to kind of cut things out all the time 
so it was um and it wasn't for long 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 periods of time you know there were kind of peaks and troughs of you know going into competition but that was also unhealthy you know the idea that you kind of would be a, a, a one weight for a few weeks while you're not competing and then you know drop loads of weight for a competition because you think about the energy that you need and the consistency of energy and where you're getting your energy stores from all of that stuff which i know now would have just been so beneficial to have known then really what about your experience of coaching i mean you touched on you know that there's all this stuff going on you know currently with coaching and gymnastics especially mm. what, what was your experience like um i had some really um lovely coaches my club coaches were firm and fair and um they could be um acerbic if they wanted to be um but they but they weren't bullying or um tyrannical or anything and um and then at national squad level we had fair coaches you know there was but we we did bring in a russian coach um arena vina who ended up becoming the russian national coach after she left us um and ended up coaching the woman who is who was a gold medalist in 2004 who's now putin's friend um (laughs) she became elena kebayeva she became i think she became like minister for sport or something and then putin left his wife so yeah um i I watched that whole thing with interest um (laughs) (laughs) i kind of go wow six degrees of separation if i'd gone back to russia with her um uh, she was she was a fascinating character because um she arrived kind of she couldn't have come looked more like somebody had gone to central casting and asked for a russian coach she had a full length mink coat on she had a suitcase which had only caviar and eve eve saint laurent's kind of reeve gauche in it you know she was she was this absolute she was like something out of a bond film and um she was very glamorous um and really loved beautiful things so my sister um who ended up becoming a model um she wasn't obviously doing what she wanted as a gymnast and she just said to my sister one day just go to hollywood just go to hollywood and be beautiful and because that that was her way of saying you're no good at gymnastics anymore (laughs) get out of here so so and even at 15 i think we could see the funny side of that do you know what i mean she wasn't but she could be she would be the way she would be a bit cruel was she wouldn't talk to you if she didn't have the time of day for you. And that was hard. That's like gaslighting, isn't it? You know, that kind of feeling that, oh God, she's ignoring me, which means I must be just not worth bothering about. Um, But I think because she was foreign, there was a very um, kind of, there was this huge fascination and there was this sense that she could do anything she wanted really, but she was never cruel. You know, she was just, um, I think some people who kind of went on after me, you know, found her to be a real high taskmaster. But of course, the British Gymnastics Association was in, um, you know, thrall in a way. They brought this Russian coach in, and they'd never done this before. And these were the days when we were getting like thumped on the world stage in, across all gymnastics. You know, we weren't winning Olympic medals. And so we were looking for ways to try and improve. And how are we going to get, you know, these girls better and these guys better? How are we going to push up the rankings? So they were looking to other countries obviously and trying to kind of work out what they did and really it wasn't until the national lottery came in that things got better because then they could really focus on you know people's training and their diet and their you know their their travel and everything and the whole package so um yeah in many ways they were kind of um you look back and think gosh they were kind of really just working it out how do we do this what do we do and she obviously did make a difference but um yeah i i found her to be quite hilarious really because you know it was it was like this parody almost this this woman who clearly she was an amazing coach she got gold medalist at the olympics but um she must have like arrived and looked at all of us and thought oh my god (laughs) 
<laughs> what do I do with this bunch of, <laughs> there were a few like talent, really talented girls who she picked, you know, kind of out, but she must have just thought I'm here for a long haul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have um, quite a sporting heritage. Your dad was a professional footballer and a manager, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I know that that meant that because, because of his job that you were moving around quite a lot as a kid. Did that affect you? I mean, what, what was that like? Um, I think when you're when you're a kid, you only know you're normal, don't you? And so, you know, we moved all the time. I think I was, um, I think I'd lived in like four houses by the time I was four. But to be to be fair, three of those were in the Leeds area. My mum just liked moving, and then we eventually moved to Coventry, where he, when he got transferred when I was four, and bringing along with us my sister who was three and my brother who was two, um, and then he moved to Tottenham but we didn't move and then he moved to Vancouver and we did move and then he moved back to Coventry and then he moved to Bradford and then he you know so and then he moved to Swansea and so you know you just kind of go with the the thing about footballers family you're usually a few steps behind them especially in those days you know we didn't have the the financial kind of riches that the Premier League do now where you just get a company in to move you you know this was like you know my mum packing boxes for three months while my dad was off playing football somewhere else so and then sorting out schools and all that kind of thing there was no kind of agent sorting out the kind of the, the path to your next kind of location so um so it was it was probably a tough for my mum but she made it out to be an adventure and um I think we we were all quite good at throwing ourselves into situations finding friends you know just getting on with it and um being quite sociable I suppose because of that um it could have probably gone the other way I guess but um it probably made us or maybe made me quite used to being transient you know so you kind of don't necessarily put those kind of really deep roots down and when you're some of some of my friends have been to the same school pretty much all their life then went to the the next um, secondary school and know people from when they were four or five years old you know people that I know now in adulthood whereas that was never going to be the case for us <laughs> we were never going to have those long kind of long relationships did it feel um did it feel like it was kind of prompting you to be more confident because you sort of had to be because you had to introduce yourself to people yeah I think you, you know especially as the eldest as well um I then had to be responsible for the other two and then another one that came behind us so you know trying to get everybody kind of into some social situation or you know kind of jump into a um a school and go right the yorats are here you know because we were like one child in every year <laughs> so so when we went into a school there were there were loads of us kind of going in um so i think people kind of knew quickly that there was a new family in town um and and i think that does make you quite adaptable because you know you you don't really um know when you how long you're going to be there and where are you going next and they wouldn't like my parents wouldn't just throw things in until it was certain and then they'd say right we're moving and my mum was always very much it was a positive experience and um try and paint it to be that we were lucky that we were going to be going to a new school (laughs) another new uniform (laughs) (laughs) and then um so the sciatica spelt the end of your gymnastics yeah gym yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah you you did discover other sport around yeah well I am when I finished gymnastics because of the sciatica it was very much a um, a result of what I was doing in gymnastics rather than something that would impede me and, you know, kind of stop me doing anything else I wanted to do. Particularly, I had to look after it, had to get it right, and then had to, you know, understand about back care. But I could do anything, really. It wasn't, um, wasn't going to stop apart from gymnastics. <laughs> um, so I did, um, I started doing cross country at school around that time. And um, I was never going to be a natural kind of runner. You know, it wasn't 
wasn't going to be my thing, but I really enjoyed it and it was easy and accessible and I could do it wherever I wanted. And then I started um, swimming because I used to swim quite a lot as my cardio for my gymnastics. And um, I started swimming thinking, I wonder how far off I am from kind of world finals times, you know, realised I was a minute off, you know, for 100 metres. And um, then I thought, right, okay, this is, this is not going to, you know, I'm not going to find another sport that's going to take me to the top. I've got to, I've got to do sport for enjoyment. I've got to do it for fitness. I've got to just realize that this is the rest of my life now, you know? So, so occasionally I, at the beginning of that kind of period, I would enter things like five Ks, 10 Ks, things like that, just to have something to kind of motivate me and go for. Cause that was the hard thing at first, the motivation. I always had this incredible motivation to keep fit and to, to be in my sport because I had a big competition looming and, you know, there was no, no way around it whereas when I had that realization that this is real life now you know and and this is the rest of my life you know 18 years old thinking oh my god like I'm going to still be doing this at 48 <laughs> you know um so that was quite quite tough and in finding enjoyment in something for its own end you know not not for some later kind of gratification why sports presenting to begin with was that because of um your experiences because of growing up with your dad and and was it odd back then to be getting into an, an area which was historically very very male dominated still is quite male dominated I didn't I didn't start out wanting to be a sports broadcaster I used to watch the only time that I'd ever see rhythmic gymnastics on telly was on Saturday mornings on trans world sport I and mean, I always watched that and then I'd watch grandstand and you know think if I was at home I'd watch those things I didn't see women on there particularly and didn't feel like that was an area that I was going to go into um on trans world sport that there was a woman who did voiceover you know so that was I, I kind of felt that was that maybe felt a little bit more like it was talking to me you know that program because they also showed slightly more obscure sports but I I never thought about sports broadcasting at all I, I thought I was when I'd done Blue Peter I was thinking right I could be serious kind of like Jeremy Paxman or I could be Zoe Ball and do Saturday morning telly you know I didn't I didn't kind of know which direction um I would particularly go in um and the editor of Blue Peter was very sweet and when I wrote to him to say I wanted to work on Blue Peter he said go to university and get a job and you know so go to university get an education sorry um and so um, that's when I started saying about doing experience and all the experience I was getting wasn't necessarily around sports broadcasting it was just anywhere in broadcasting and it was only when I worked on the local radio station I was doing the breakfast show it's like Capital FM uh, that kind of station and I was doing the breakfast show, which was like a fun, lively show with, this is when I graduated with a, with a guy and a guy called Mark. And uh, after the show, I'd always hang out in the sports end of the, the newsroom and chat to the sports team about Newcastle United or what else was going on in the world of sport. And so they said to me after a few months, why don't you do touchline interviews for us at St. James's Park? Because you really love football and you're very into your sport. And that was basically how it all started because, um, they they were quite canny I suppose because the guy who'd been doing their interviews was about 72 and he was probably getting on a bit and the footballers just walked past him <laughs> so I think they thought oh Gabby's 22 <laughs> and she so it was kind of like reverse sexism basically they just put me in there because they thought the footballers might stop and chat to me um and I said well are you going to train me like what do I you know I don't know how to do this and so they were really really lovely and the team that did the interviews that did the commentary on a Saturday there was a commentator a co-commentator and a producer and they just took me under their wing three blokes three northeast blokes you know and um 
show me the ropes, show me what to do. And it was like a fun Saturday job. You know, I used to love going to St. James's Park. We had such a good season. That season was great and it was so much fun. And then at the end of that season, I got asked to go to Sky for a screen test because Sky had seen me at pitch side and wanted more women. And so it kind of snowballed really from there. And I, when I went to Sky and I took the job, I still didn't think it was going to be a long-term career. I thought it was going to be a way to get me to London where there were going to be more jobs <laughs> and more opportunities. So. I suppose it was a, some, something to do with timing, both in the respect of the timing of um, the day that I was asked by Sky to go to Sky, you know, and seeing me on the pitch and all of that kind of thing, but also timing in that it was the time was right for the doors to start being opened for more women in that area. And I happened to be the person with their foot kind of wedged in the door. <laughs> so, um, and I enjoyed it. So I kind of didn't feel like it was something that I had to push back against because I, I really I really love sport so I didn't feel like if you'd said to me we want you to present the proms I would have been like a bit more I don't I don't what what's chamber music you know I would have just been a bit kind of out of my comfort zone but I didn't feel uncomfortable so I suppose that helped me both regards progression in the career and also being okay at it you know because I was in an area that I felt comfortable with. Do you think that you faced any kind of um, criticisms that men may not have had? Yeah, I'm sure. And um, I mean, those early days when I was at St. James's Park on the pitch side, um, those guys were lovely and supportive, but they probably never thought I'd go on and present match of the day. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> they saw that as a means to an end for them, you know? And so that, that experience was probably not reflective of what was about to happen, you know, because when you go in further into the kind of lion's den and, um, and then people start to feel threatened, you know, what, what is any kind of discrimination? It's people feeling threatened for usually completely illogical reasons and because they don't understand why you're here or what you what you're about you know and so that kind of uh, slightly um not 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 particularly well thought out you know kind of just just a general discrimination you know there's no sense of saying well i don't think it's your job to do this because x just i don't think you should be here but i'm not quite sure why you know it's very hard to argue against somebody who has those kinds of opinions and there were a few of those floating around um and people would either, you know, write snarly things in newspapers or, um, but there wasn't, I, I, you know, generally people were, were quite supportive and encouraging, but there's going to be the odd person that feels for some reason that you shouldn't be in their space. And there was one particularly, it was about 2001 Daily Mail article, which was unbelievably um, kind of cruel and um nonsensical and vitriolic really about loads of female broadcasters and the, and the gist of the article was that this was the final space for men and women were coming for it <laughs> this idea that that, um, that that men had nowhere left you know because sport was their space i mean this was, this was 2000 you know um and i kind of heard this almost in disbelief because it just you know to me it had no no place in, in modern society. So, you know, the, the, the people that had those opinions, you know, were not going to be moved. If you think that, it's very hard for me to convince you otherwise, isn't it? So you've just got to keep on going. I was going to talk to you about Daily Mail article, actually, because um, <laughs> I'd read another another beauty 
um, which described you as showing off your arms, which I thought was amazing. You showing well, off. They have arms. an amazing way of showing off your arms, of flaunting your flaunting. Uh, flaunting yeah, flaunting her. You know, but they do it with people like flaunting their new tracksuit. You know, um, fla- <laughs> flaunting their so new apron. Like... <laughs> she's in the kitchen flaunting her apron. Um, she's <laughs> she's showing off. Look her. She's showing off her feet again. Um, I know. And I, I I once. I mean, I try not to dip into it very often, but I once saw um, on the on the bar of shame four out of six articles had a woman showing off something yeah. yeah and none of them were showing anything off by the way they were just going about their everyday business they were walking down the road you know they were they were they were entering their place of work so um yeah shamelessly it's so very... flaunting their ankles i know it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it, it just uh, yeah it was it was mind-boggling that, that you were showing off your arms but you know gary lineker was not showing off anything at all apparently no, at the same time no um, and it also went on to show you on Instagram doing a workout that it said this kind of grueling arm workout. And I, <laughs> I couldn't help but click on it. I thought, oh, oh what's she doing? That'd be interesting. You were doing a, you were doing a core workout, actually. <laughs> they didn't actually get that it was that it was an arm. It wasn't anything to do with arms at all. Yeah. <laughs> look how look how much she's using her arms in that in that core yeah. workout. Um <laughs> yeah there's there is there is uh misogyny all around us i think it's fair Isn't to there? say yeah i mean how do you feel about that level of gaze to to, to kind of land in the daily mail i don't feel like i'm very i'm i'm very much in the center of that kind of thing at all really i'm kind of i don't feel like i'm interesting to a lot of that stuff so i'm not i'm not that you know bothered by it at all and when there have been things that are a bit cruel or a bit unnecessary you know you do sometimes steal yourself and then just think oh god's sake it's really not you know and that takes time to come to those you know to that position because when you're younger it is a lot harder to do that it's a lot harder to to brush stuff off and think you know that it's not relevant um about five years ago i wore a dress for sports personality of the year very simple long sleeves i wasn't flaunting my arms (laughs) sleeves came down to my elbow mid-calf um, by a company called Self Portrait, and so their dresses are quite lacy, and it was um, a black, teal, and white. And the Daily Mail really took offence to it, sacked the stylist. In the same copy of the paper, they had Claudia Winkleman wearing it on Strictly two weeks before, and they did an article about Strictly and said how amazing she looked in this dress, the exact same dress. And um, and I just was like, I thought that is, there is the absolute evidence that this makes no sense. The whole thing is completely, you know, subjective. It depends who's decided it's her turn today. You know, it's her turn. We're going to give her a bit of a slap today. And um, and we, we didn't actually even bother in the office to check whether somebody was actually praising that dress five pages later. <laughs> so so I, I couldn't, you know, couldn't take that seriously because it was I felt bad for my one of my best friends is the person I would work with in styling terms um, who is an amazing stylist. And I felt sorry for her, not me, because she's incredible, you know, and I was like, oh, and her dad rang her up and went, oh, Charlotte, look at this. <laughs> oh, no. She was like, dad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I can't, you know, I can't say that it doesn't occasionally just give you a tiny little bit of like, oh, but then you, you know, you wouldn't be human. I think if everything was able to bounce off you, but most of the time, 90% of the time it bounces, 99% bounces off. It's hard when your kids read something and they feel a little bit affronted but even there now at 15 they think things like that are a joke you know they did used to be quite upset if somebody was critical of me good but, um yeah. but now they just join in i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> now they write the headlines for them. <laughs> um, and your your presenting career is um, is so varied and so kind of illustrious. I mean, that you know, Olympics, Match of the Day, Question of Sport, Commonwealth Games, all these things. Which has been the highlight for you? Um, I think it would be hard to ever find an event like the London Olympics that gives us, you know, as a nation, that joy and appreciation of sport, endeavour, hard work, brilliant individuals that we didn't know about, or obviously we did, but, you know, the public didn't know about the week before suddenly becoming household names, all of that. And that, that feeling of, of the, I've just, by the way, there's a leaf blower just starting near me. So if it gets too loud, if it gets too loud, let me know. It hasn't, it wasn't my breakfast, just kind of making a um, (laughs) a welcome return. Um, uh, And I think that it it was as collective, you know, the BBC sport team, we just pulled out all the stops. We all worked these crazy 20 hour days and, and it was joy, an absolute joy to work on. And I've worked on a surprisingly brilliant World Cup in 2018 in Russia, which surpassed and blew out of water all my expectations of what that experience is going to be like. And I've worked on Rugby World Cups where England have won. I've worked on the Women's World Cup in France where the nation, you know, kind of got behind the Lionesses in a way that we hoped but didn't really dare dream. And and all of those things were fantastic. But I think London 2012 just felt like a coming together, that um, this unity that we could so do with now um, was really special. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I just remember watching it. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. Yeah, I don't know if you saw um, Jordan, who's been in the jungle, and I'm a celebrity, do, telling Mo Farah that he was really sorry he'd spent the whole week watching 12 Hours Olympics a day. And on the night of Super Saturday, his mate came around and said, come on, let's watch a film tonight and get a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and like apologising to Mo Farah that he didn't see him. Oh, no. <laughs> you can see Mo Farah thinking, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm not really that bothered. <laughs> oh, and I, um, you're an MBE now, aren't you? Congratulations. Yes, I haven't actually physically gone and picked it up. I've got the certificate, but because of um, COVID, my ceremony was supposed to be in June this year, 2020. And um, yeah, it got cancelled, funny enough. Uh, <laughs> so I'll postponed. But I don't know how they're going to do them because... There's going to be the New Year's Honours list, as well as the birthday list. Also, I'm not sure many members of the royal family want to do public engagements like that, where they touch the public anymore. (laughs) Would yours be with the Queen, do you think? I I mean, I don't know. It could have been with the Queen. Um, We don't know. You know, you don't know. They don't tell you on your invite who's going to be there. Um, We knew it wasn't Prince Andrew. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And Harry and Meghan had disappeared by that point as well. So the the list of people was dwindling who it could possibly be. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. By the time I get it it could be like louis or george or uh, charlotte, <laughs> charlotte yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um you've been very vocal about the importance of sport for kids um particularly during lockdown um which i can i can really get behind so um can you explain why this is something that you're so passionate about yeah i i think um i i just can't believe that grassroots sport is is being kind of pushed to one side in the way that it is at the moment in terms of kids who go to school together are together all day anyway so so their you know their kind of bubble if you like would not make a difference if they were playing the, the ready for rugby which is the rugby they've been playing football cricket sorry um hockey netball all those sports that they're together anyway all day at school so um it feels that they're missing a massive part of of their education their physical education but also 
what they need right now, which is that release of endorphins, that team kind of spirit that you get, that lovely release from their, you know, from their day. The school school life is tough at the moment, especially for older kids. They've got to wear masks all day long in lots of schools. My both my kids have to wear masks at schools at school. Um they're you know they're not allowed to socialize at the weekends they're not allowed to socialize full stop um you know so they they don't have anything to release and it was hard enough going through the whole summer and then summer was tough having teenagers who couldn't do sport you know who used to going away on camps and training and all that kind of thing that's tough for them. and for us as well to keep them because we couldn't go anywhere so what we're going to you know what were they going to do but i think you run the risk of losing you lose coaches you lose supporters and volunteers because if you're not engaging them they'll find something else to fill their days and time with so you know my worry is that kids come through this winter and just don't come back, you know, because it was a fragile age anyway, you know, an age where, you you know, you're suddenly starting to see things that you might want to do. But if the sport's not keeping you there, that, that worries me but it, or concerns me. But, um, but their physical well-being concerns me as well, you know, because a lot of kids don't come from families which have a background in sport like ours do, where, where we encourage our kids, you know, all the time to do stuff. And their only physical education comes from school, comes from that environment. And, and if you're not keeping them engaged there, you know that they're going to turn into adults pretty soon who may have lost that and um and i think we're we've got a problem on our hands as a society anyway in terms of the increasing rates of obesity um we've got a problem um in terms of the 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 other diseases and illnesses that come from that so we can't lose these kids you know these are our these are these are the best chance we've got of of carrying on as healthy adults um, and I, you know, I just really feel for them. I, feel, I, I can see the frustration in my own children. So if I, if I imagine that's going on in households all over the country, um, it's tough. It is really tough. And, you know, if you haven't got kids or you're not that bothered about sport, you might think I'm being unnecessarily kind of, you know, churlish and I'm, I'm finding something that seems to be on the periphery of society. But for me, it's everything. You know, it's, it's all about your physical well-being. Let's be honest, the people who've been affected the worst with coronavirus are people with underlying health conditions, as well as the old, obviously. And those conditions come from being unhealthy 90% of the time. And and so we need to address that. Yes, I, I thoroughly agree. And um, in terms of school and in terms of sport and things, I think particularly... Um, Particularly in terms of girls, um, the, the sort of the drop off rate of sport when you. Well, when you get I mean, to... obviously, the, the thing that's been highlighted as well is the the fact that football academies for boys are back, but football academies for girls aren't back, and that's a money thing. And I think why that's important to highlight is because um, you know a few of my friends have been like, "It's just sexist," and I said, "Well, it is sexist, but it's sexist not because of the way you think it's sexist. It's not just about saying the girls can't do it, the boys can." It's sexist because of the way the sports have been developing. Because obviously, women's football has had a massive um, push in the last 10 years in terms of professionalism, but it had 40 years of stagnation where it wasn't professional, where it wasn't played. And so the men's game has got so much more money, so much more um, kind of very, very concrete infrastructure has got a lot of brands and marketing and the women's game is just scratching the surface of all of that. So while the women's game is playing catch up, we're seeing now where those holes are and the holes are financially at the lower end of the game, which is the, the academies, you know? So, um, it's highlighted that, yeah, we've got more women um, on telly playing sport, more women being talked about in newspapers and, you know, still not enough, but actually it's, it's paper thin, isn't it? You know, it's just kind of, it's just kind of gone over the cracks and really it's the depth. It's when you drill down, that's why those academies aren't running. Cause you've got to be COVID secure. How do you be COVID secure? You've got to pay the money and they just haven't got the money. And I mean, how do you feel like your experiences as a child? I mean, 
um, we're the same age. So how do you feel your experiences, like when you were a kid at school, your PE experiences, how are they different from what your kids are, are sort of going through now? My kids are really lucky because they go to, um, my son in particular goes to a school which is very, very, very sporty um, and um, they do sport every day. And um, their headmaster used to play for Ireland at rugby. And and so sport is valued, you know, across the piece. They, they're right on the River Thames, so they've got a history of rowing there as well. So they have a lot of um, a lot of rowing. Um, and so he is absolutely in the right place for him because uh, he's dyslexic. He works hard, but he gets a lot of self-esteem from sport. And so he needs that release every day. And, um, and so he's really lucky that he's still able to do school sport, but he's in an academy, a rugby academy, and they haven't played this year for a whole year. He'll, he'll, he won't do contact probably till next year, mm. at a really crucial point in his sporting life, you know, so that's, that's really been tough for him and he needs that release. You know, he needs that kind of that emotional and hormonal release. Um, but, but um, my daughter's also been to much sporty schools than me and when I look back I think gosh if I'd had the opportunities they've had at school you know because they've had so much more sport um than I had at, at school I had to do all mine outside of school but my example my experience is is what 93% of the kids because they go to private schools so 93% of the kids in this country don't go to private schools and they have an experience like I had at school which was where you generally had to find your sport outside of school unless you wanted to play football but if you're a boy <laughs> because the sport in school wasn't I mean there are exceptions obviously but a lot of what girls have to do is go outside don't they you know and go find it somewhere else um which is takes a lot of time and tenacity and you know you've got to dig it out for yourself and find out that there is a club and there is you know or unless you're playing the kind of regular mainstream sports so um yeah it's i think it's a mixed picture i think is the best you can say about sport in this country for kids isn't it, it you know it depends on your where you live who who's in charge of the school who's in charge of pe you know whether you've got somebody who really is you know passionate about sport at the school a lot of kids are lucky they do have that but a lot of kids don't have access to that um it's not a level playing ground is it no absolutely not um and so tell me about your running how did you how did you get into running what do you do um i'm not a um i remember once saying to paula radcliffe uh, when i was working with her I, I just can't run longer than 40 minutes. And she's like, and I have done because I've run half marathons and stuff. And I certainly didn't do that in 40 minutes. And she said, you've just got to, well, however slow you go, you've just got to say to yourself, I'm going to run an hour today. And that's, you know, that's kind of what, and so I've always been somebody who's gone for a half hour run. That's my kind of like, I like to go for about half an hour. I'm not an ultra runner. I'm not somebody who's ever going to be kind of, you know, ripping up kind of record times on anything, but I like, I always want to be able to go for like a five mile run. That's my kind of um, goal in life that, you know, 5k to five miles kind of, you know, so that kind of distance where you can get a good heart, kind of your heart gets going, you get a bit of a sweat on, your legs feel it, you know, you feel it in your lungs, but you don't, you know, kind of like you're not collapsing at the end of it, you know, that's, but you feel it, you know, that's what, and I love being outside. So I don't want to just do everything I do inside. I like being outside and running is the easiest way to get outside and exercise for me. So, and it's so easy to do. You just have trainers, you know, and some, some, and the right clothing and you're off. And so wherever I go in the world when I'm working or, you know, I know that that is the very, at the very least I'll be able to do that. Um, I'll be able to go for a run if there's no gym or if there's no pool or if there's nothing else, at least I can go for a run. So it's just something that I think I started when I was about, started doing cross countries when I was about 16, 17, and then started running on the roads. And I've always 
I've always done it. You know, it's always, but it's always kind of been there. But I've never really got any better. <laughs> <laughs> You've done races. Yeah, I've done. I've done um, things like ten k's and five k's and half marathons and stuff. And whenever I present the London Marathon, which I've been lucky enough to do for like, the last six, seven years. I always think, oh, one day when I stop doing this, I'll do this because it's such an amazing day. And I always feel so elated by the end of it, you know, kind of being around all this incredible positivity. Um, and I'm really envious of anybody who crosses the line, you know, because I just think it must be the most wonderful feeling. Um, but I'm not sure my body is really built for marathon running, if, it was, if I was honest with myself. <laughs> it's um, it's definitely, definitely prefers those shorter distances. So, um, well, you do lots of lots of different kinds of sport. So, what would what would be like a week's a week's kind of view of training for you? What would that be um, like? At the moment, I, I've I've kind of had a bit of a, a revelation this year because um, where we live, we live up in the Chilterns, and from about April to October, I have the most incredible running trails. It's just beautiful; you can run for miles, and it's gorgeous. And um, and so in the winter, I tended to stop running because it was too um, slippy underfoot. I went and bought some trail running shoes and all of a sudden I can run again outside. Like for the, I was like, why didn't I do this? Like, what? So then I bought my husband some and he can't run. My back hurts. I can't run. And I've managed to persuade him to come out with me a bit as well this winter. So, um, so I kind of a couple of times a week, at least I'll do that. And then I'll be in the gym, maybe doing a kind of weights circuit type session three times um, I might do a, one or two bar classes. I really like bar. And um, in normal times, I will do yoga at least once a week with a trainer. That's the only time I work with a trainer is yoga. Um, so that'd be kind of my normal week would be like that. Yeah. So do you have, um, what, did you have any races um, that were cancelled because of coronavirus? No, no. I was about to start park runs i thought i'm going to go and start doing some park runs that's what i and the weekend that i thought oh, i'm free this weekend they got they were going to come back weren't they and then they stopped um but i was thinking maybe next summer i'll try and get some road runs in um and do some 10ks or something i think that's my kind of distance really to train towards now that i know i can run in winter time <laughs> do you do you tend to run on your own or do you run with a buddy or a... Uh, i tend to run on my own or kenny's been lately coming with me and this morning actually because we went out at seven as soon as it got a little bit light we took my daughter has to be on the bus for eight so i said look we'll go out for half an hour and you can um because i know she's not been she rides she's a she's an equestrian person she does show jumping and she's always um kind of oh i, I do enough you know because i said you need to do stuff outside of riding you know as well because she doesn't really do any school sport anymore because she's gcse here mm-hmm. um and she was playing netball and hockey and stuff but not anymore and uh halfway through the run she had to kind of turn around so um i think we're um, i think i've made my point that she does need to do some more cardio <laughs> <laughs> so she'll when she can get fit really quickly so in the summertime she was coming out with me quite a lot and she was really fit but she's lost her cardio fitness which is a bit of a shocker for her, i think today so um she was like oh you're so cruel i said no i'm not it just it goes if you don't use it it goes but you'll get it back quickly because you're young and healthy and you know you'll be back running and i don't i said it's a really lovely thing to always be able to do don't lose it do you know what i mean when you're 28 you'll feel very different to how you do now so um hopefully i I made my point. I had to stop running with my son, who's the same age because they're twins, um, probably about five years ago when he just left me for dust on a run one day. And um, he was about 10 and I was like, it was so dispiriting. Cause it, <laughs> and, um, he okay, came my home. seven-year-old can run faster than me. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very, yeah. I've got a friend actually who lives not far away. We were talking about 
buddying up and starting to run together. She's about 10 years younger than me, so I'm slightly worried about how quick she is. So I'll have to have to go on one slow jog with her and just see how, how it is. But it, I think it's nice to be able to talk for most of the time, you know, like not full-on conversations, but just have somebody or either that or I just then put my AirPods in and listen to something, a podcast or something. What do you listen to? Um, in the mornings I do tend to listen to kind of like radio actually because I you know listen to that and then I'm not very good at listening to music when I run I might make occasionally in the summertime I make a summer playlist to go out for a run with but um like comedy podcasts and um what, what if I'm researching something I'll go and listen to something to do with that person or um yeah the podcasts are amazing aren't they because you can go into any area and um like my daughter really got into true crime podcasts and, oh yeah um, i've not really got into those i'm kind of i don't really want to be entertained in that way do you know what i mean when i'm running i want i don't know i want to kind of feel like oh my god i've just run two miles and i didn't even you know I, the first two miles of my run i didn't even notice because i was listening to this so um so that's what i try and um and also uh motive sometimes motivate you need a bit of motivation so it might be somebody that's quite inspiring you know if you're feeling a little bit um off color or like you kind of that you know that first step's quite hard yeah I've been getting into audiobooks because that's that's been my my revelation was kind of in realizing that podcasts weren't quite long enough for the really really long runs <laughs> so going into audiobooks and kind of listening to the books that I should have read 20 years ago oh wow that's a that's a really good idea yeah yeah it's great <laughs> it's fantastic I think I do think that podcasts and, and audiobooks have, have been like a massive motivator to actually get people out there yeah definitely I'm in a a, a book club and um one of the books I was struggling a bit with so I um I did listen to that on a on a run and actually it does make such because then I could go back I went back to it then as a book you know and once I got those few chapters out of the way (laughs) (laughs) and also it's we're also time poor aren't we and so you know we were before lockdown (laughs) so so it does you know it does give you that you could do two really important things to yourself at the same time exercise and nourish your brain so exactly yeah (laughs) it's win-win um let's talk nutrition because um one of the reasons we're chatting is because of our mutual friend Lindsay. um i know that you're on the board for train your gut um which is a drink but it's specifically for your to to kind of nourish your your guts why yeah, guts? it's a probiotic sports drink, basically, yeah. and it's um, very, very, you know, low in, if, if any, sugar, and it's um, incredibly um, well-sourced ingredients. But the, the main reason uh, that I was really drawn to it and passionate about it, and I've known Aoife, who invented it from the beginning, before she even had the drink, uh, she was doing cold-pressed juices at the time, um, is because of the importance of gut health, I think, is, you know, I live with... My husband's got really um, sensitive gut. He's got um, gluten issues. And um, when he is on it with his, you know, his gut and his diet, the health ramifications are massive. For him, it's about his back. His back can kind of go into incredible pain for for weeks if his gut's not right. And um, and that is, you know, partly to do with the pressing of the bowel on the kind of on the spine and everything. And but for uh, for other people, you know, the gut health comes manifests itself in all kinds of ways. It's stress, you know, if you've got if your tendency to have things like IBS, if you've got um, uh, other other kind of cramping kind of issues in your stomach, or you're you're not you haven't got very good movement, you know, bowel movement. All those things can lead to so many other issues you know whether it's sleep um problems or skin issues you know there's so much that comes from the gut and they call it the second brain and and so i think gut health is big already but is is only going to get bigger as a health 
topic, I think, um, over the next few years because it it leads and flows to all of our kind of holistic well-being. So how you absorb your nutrients from the rest of your food is down to your gut health, you know. So if you haven't got the right biome in there, you're, you're not getting from your food what you should. You might be putting everything in, but only getting 10% out of what you should, what, what the nutrients that are there. So, I mean, how, how would that impact a runner, for instance? Well, if you think about your energy stores, you know, how you're, um, where you're getting your energy from when you're running. Um, if, you're, if your diet is being impacted by you not having very good gut health, you're not getting your energy, you know, where you, where you should get it from, you know. So you're, you're not recovering as well as you should because obviously you're releasing stress hormones when you exercise anyway, you know, um, cortisol. So, so that can impact your, your gut afterwards. You know, if you haven't got the right probiotic there, then you're, you're going to have um, an inflamed gut because that's, you know, that's what it is. It's inflammation. And so for a runner or anybody doing, you know, any kind of cardio exercise, long, long cardio exercise, you want to have a source of energy that is consistent. You're not having kind of peaks and troughs and feeling, you know, great in the first five minutes and then exhausted. And you also, if you're not a full-time professional runner, but somebody who just really likes running, you're going to have to go to work then later in the day or go, you know, to school. You're not, you're not having got the luxury of going to bed for seven hours during the day if you're, you know, if you're not Mo Farah. So you need to, you know, you need to be able to release energy consistently throughout the day um, and recover and that that is where gut health is you know vital in terms of recovery and what about food generally what 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 do you like to eat are you very conscious about what you eat um I, i'm conscious in as much as i um what i buy is you know try and buy good food that you know, is you know well sourced and we, we eat a lot of um, vegetables a lot of fish um a lot of um I kind of, I suppose our main source of, because of Kenny, our main source of um, carbohydrate would be brown rice because that works well with his stomach. He doesn't really like tomatoes at the moment. He finds that they, they, they don't do well for him and his gut. Apparently, um, tomatoes and aubergines and... Um, oh, is this deadly nightshade? Yeah, the deadly no. nightshade vegetables aren't good for him at the moment and he doesn't eat any gluten bread or anything like that you know mm. we eat bread or pasta so um so i tend to kind of try and work around that we can all eat the same food so we're not i'm not making different meals but you know the kids will eat everything um so a lot of, a lot of fish a lot of this time of year i like to make kind of stews or hearty soups you know with vegetables and fish and things like that and um, we had a massive roast on sunday which i did but i didn't do any potatoes i just did things like squash and fennel and um you know all those kind of nice wintry vegetables i, I like that seasonal eating you know in the summer i love i love kind of grilled meat and fish and salads you know i could just live off that all summer but um when it gets to winter, I think you just do need to keep your body warm, don't you, inside? So yeah, I, yeah, I thoroughly agree. Yeah, I had a massive, massive stew last night as well. Um, so um, I was reading that you're a patron of of a number of charities and president of at least one, um, possibly more. I'm not sure. Um, what made you pick those those charities? Why why are they important to you? I think when I first started out in the job that I I do, I, you're approached by various people to try and kind of help raise awareness on issues and and some resonate more than others and some are just more persistent and you like the people and you kind of go along with you know the so sparks which has now been kind of absorbed by great ormond street hospital we were both presidents of kenny and i and have been involved with for 20 years and that's all to do with research into children and uh babies illnesses that affect pregnant women so anything to do with kind of 
uh, prenatal, postnatal, and it's and it is research, so it's finding cures and um, actually kind of feels like a charity that you know now people are really interested in cures and vaccines and things like that. It would actually do well because um, people understand a bit more about science uh, a little bit, or they understand how long it takes to come up with with treatments. Um, and that led us to work a bit with Great Ormond Street as well. Um, and those, and we, we we did that before we had children. So it wasn't because we had children. It was just it was just they just were a really great kind of based um, in sport. They kind of started out because of sport. Um, they used to do golf days and things like that. And they had a lot of sporting connections. And then um, I've done things campaigns over the years with the British Heart Foundation because my brother died from a congenital heart disease, and um, also. Uh, like uh, Muscular Dystrophy UK asked me to be their president two years ago. Sue Barker was their president for 13 years before. Um, and they just asked me for lunch and, you know, asked me to get involved. And I was all fully prepared to say, no, I'm, you know, I haven't got time. And this is, you know, really lovely. Um, I'll do it what I can for you. But, um, and then when they started telling me all about muscular dystrophy, I just was you know, completely taken in and that was it. I was like, yeah, I'll help you. <laughs> um, so, um, so, and sometimes it's just one-off causes for things that, you know, Kenny, my husband is um, working a lot with um, motor neurone disease um, with his friend, Doddy Weir, who has motor neurone. So you become, so much more knowledgeable in an area don't you when somebody is affected by something um and i think i'm quite not uh, so much fatalistic but i do believe that things come into your life for a reason that you know that you that you don't just ignore those kinds of things and that you um you almost get as much out of it as as you know they do from you being involved because you learn so much and it gives you an insight into other people's lives doesn't it and what people deal with do you find it difficult to say no to people when they ask for your help um, yeah, I do. I'm, I'm kind of realistic now a bit more about time, you know, so um, you can't just, I don't want to do something and then not do it properly. Um, so I try to manage my time <laughs> better, or at least make them aware that this is I'm only available, you know, I might only have four or five days a year for you, or I can only do this. But you know, um, I think you also, more and more as you get older, you really are fully aware of what's important to you and what's you know what you think you can help change or make better (laughs) you're you're way more experienced than I am at interviewing people so um what question haven't I asked you that I should have asked you (laughs) (laughs) can you do the last bit of the interview yourself please (laughs) (laughs) you've done an excellent job I don't I don't think there's anything that I was uh I was expecting to be asked or um or disappointed that you asked um so no I think I think um yeah you've you've covered the lot really (laughs) from moving around as a child to um (laughs) having hungry teenagers i think uh yeah we covered a lot <laughs> so that was the rather wonderful gabby logan who it turns out is two handshakes away from putin yeah yeah aren't we all don't forget to go to runderwear.co.uk and enter the code wr20 for an exclusive 20 percent off the whole range there's not long left to do this so pick up your next favorite running bra now In our next interview, we're going to be speaking to Leanne Davis, the founder of Run Mummy Run. And in between our interviews, we have a brand new podcast for you every other week. The Women's Running Workshop with me and Holly, cutting through all that running jargon to help you start running with confidence. This episode was recorded over Zoom. 
The editor and composer was David Newman, and my mic is the Podcast Pro from Sontronics. Please hit like and subscribe. That way, you won't miss the next episode. At Women's Running, we want to inspire you to run, whether you've never run before or you're training for your fifth ultramarathon. We think that women who run need a space for themselves, and we want to be that. Every month, we talk all things running and all things women, from training plans for specific distances to interviews with incredible runners, ideas on how to improve your running and remain injury-free, to delicious recipes to fuel your running and tons of advice on women's health. The easiest way to get hold of a copy is to go to our online shop at shop.womensrunning.co.uk or you could get it delivered direct to your door or to your inbox every month by subscribing. You can buy the digital edition at pocketmags.com or download the app to your phone or tablet through your app store. For all the different ways to read the magazine, go to shop.womensrunning.co.uk. Do join us. We would love to have you with us. Happy running. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 